Hey guys, welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast episode 8 and we've got a great guest for you today. It's Murad Mamadov. And so Murad is a managing partner of Digital Frontiers, which is a fund which is starting up soon. Uh, and he is very well known for some of his articles and his Twitter posts, some of which are Bitcoin past and future, the many faces of Bitcoin. And he's, yeah, he's got some really viral Twitter threads that have just gone crazy on Twitter. So I thought it would be fantastic to get him on the show. So, Murad, thanks very much for coming on. How are you? Um, hello, Stefan. Uh, super glad to be here. Um, really humbled for the invite. Before, the, before we proceed, I would like to thank you for taking the time to start your podcast in general. Um, I maintain my own list of my favorite Bitcoin slash cryptocurrency podcasts. And it's quite remarkable. I was just telling my brother this morning, in just two weeks, you went from your podcast went from non-existence to top three podcasts in my view and uh, every single one of your guests and episodes so far have been nothing short of legendary so i'm very humbled for the invite and thank you for starting this project man oh wow thank you very much that's very kind of you Murad. um yeah no that's that's excellent and I, you know i thought i think very highly of your, your analysis as well so i thought you know it'd be fantastic to get you on so uh let's let's start with um some of your articles uh one of them was the many faces of bitcoin which you co-wrote which uh, with adam tash and i thought that was a fantastic summary of various different points of view within bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and so one thing that struck out, struck really stuck out to me was the crypto Austrian view, the summary of that. So maybe you want to tell us a little bit about what you've read and who have your influences been? For sure. Um, I've sort of always considered myself a libertarian for many, many years. Um, and in my view, sort of on a more economic financial monetary side, I believe um, Austrian economics complements sort of the, the general libertarian philosophy very, very well. But um, I'm a big fan of Mises, Hulsman, Rothbard, um, Murphy, DeSoto, and many, many others. Nice, man. That's excellent. Yeah, so I think, and that's the thing, you're quite young as well. Like, I think you're in like your like early or mid-20s as well. So uh, quite uh, good of you that you're, you've been so well-developed in terms of your knowledge. Um, okay, cool. So maybe you wanted to... Uh, offer just a bit of a summary of some of the different schools of thought as you did in your Bitcoin past and future. Definitely. And before before I do describe them, I think some of them at this point are nonsensical um, relative to the crypto Austrian view. But uh, we sort of wanted to be objective and sort of uh, describe the predominant approaches without sort of offering our own subjective biases. But um, the, the, four, the four schools of thought that we generally described in our first article was, um, well, A, the crypto-Austrian view that you already mentioned. And this is sort of, in, in a very loose metaphor, sort of approaching Bitcoin as digital gold. Uh, though I like to say that Bitcoin isn't digital gold, it's more akin to um, digital monetary nuclear weapons. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> nice. But um, so first, the first view, and that's I believe that that is the view that the market is increasingly converging upon, thankfully, is sort of this view that we need to sort of saturate the store of value before we proceed to medium of exchange, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's sort of like the general um, neo gold approach and um, safety that you already had on the first episode of your podcast it has uh, repeatedly sort of. Uh, driven the hammer home on sort of that approach. Um, the second approach was sort of uh, prioritizing sort of the medium of exchange or rather the medium of payment or functionality and capacity first. And that's sort of what Bitcoin Cash and I would argue several other altcoins are taking, which, which I consider to be sort of a, a futile or rather a less wise approach. Um, the third approach was sort of more in line with um, John Nash's idea idea of ideal money. And sort of it has some similarities with the neo-gold approach, but it, it diverges in the sense that um, a couple of authors and bloggers who take this view of Bitcoin, they think that fiat currencies eventually, like they won't go away, 
but rather similar to um, the, I guess, late 19th century in Europe, instead of fiat currencies going away, they will be um, either redeemable for Bitcoin or they'll be like uh, backed by Bitcoin um, in some in some way, shape or form. Uh, and this would still allow for some or, or, or less than today, it would still allow for some sort of discretionary local monetary policy and, and sort of um, divergence in terms of like consumer prices around the world, but um, or rather influencing the consumer price around the world. But uh, essentially, the Bitcoin would still grow big in that sort of scenario, uh, but like fiat currencies would remain. Um, and mm. in my view, in my view, that may as well be the case, but I think at best it would be temporary. And I increasingly believe that hybrid Bitcoinization is is possible, um, and if if not plausible, and in the long run, I believe that something like that is likely to take place. And then the fourth view, and that's sort of um, it's it's quite abstract. Um, DeSantis, Mark Wilcox, and a couple of um, other very interesting and colorful characters in uh, the in the crypto Twitter space, so to speak. Um, have been espousing <laughs> this view. And essentially, they sort of try to approach Bitcoin from a this Claude Shannon information theory, George Gilder type perspective. And um, they believe that like in the very, very, very long run, um, Bitcoin isn't just money, but rather it will be a massive computational network, which will do much, much more than just... Um, be our global reserve currency uh, and even within that view some people believe that the more prudent approach is to increase sort of block sizes and allow massive computation to happen on chain there are others who think that all of these cool applications should exist on layer two layer three layer four uh, but in general they believe that bitcoin and its forks are this massive sort of like tree of life or this black hole that will like subsume not just money, not just financial applications, not just like digital banking, et cetera, but um, a lot of sort of the uh, technological and computational uh, applications, services and products as well. So those are sort of the general yeah. views. Yeah, that's a great summary, I think. It's, it's quite difficult to sometimes step aside and really steel man the position of people who you don't necessarily agree with. And so I think, you know, you, you guys did a great job with that article. Um, uh, yeah, and I think, yeah, you've done a, yeah, it's it's a great read. So for anyone who's new, it's that's a great post. And I'll obviously put that in the show notes page for this episode. Um, the next one I wanted to talk about was in your article, Bitcoin Past and Future, where actually you also do a bit of a great summary. And I think I'm leading to this as well, that I think you're actually, you're actually quite well read across different uh, theories of, you know, economic thought. And so... Uh, you, you provide a nice little summary on some of the different schools of economic thought uh, within Bitcoin and crypto cryptocurrencies. Do you mind outlining some of those, such as, you know, the Austrian full reserve, the Austrian fract fractional reserve, free banking, uh, Keynesian, Nash money, which, which you've already touched on? For sure. Um, so the, one of the biggest sort of debates within Bitcoin, uh, and that's sort of one of the topics we delve into uh, that second article, Past and Future, is whether uh, fractional reserve um, banking would end up emerging atop Bitcoin or not. And there are, we've seen sort of a lot of debates on this topic in the last couple of weeks and months, even among sort of the prominent Austrian economists uh, on Twitter and sort of on um, other uh, platforms lately. And um, essentially sort of, Safetyn, um, who I I would imagine considers himself closer to sort of the hardcore Rothbardian approach, um, they believe they, they're generally against the idea of fractional reserve banking and like consider it to be uh, fraudulent on like an ethical level, and they believe that fractional reserve banking would is un, is unlikely to emerge atop Bitcoin, as Bitcoin's um, it's important to know that like Bitcoins lack the physical centralization of gold and it, it's unlikely in my view to repeat sort of um, the, the it's, it's, it's much more unseizable than gold. And like, as we know in many parts around the world, 
uh, gold was repeatedly uh, seized from the populace, uh, or rather the convertibility or redeemability of paper money was often stopped for like many, many years um, throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. And uh, it's unlikely that something like this would happen to Bitcoin, which is one of the several arguments why it's unlikely to emerge. Um, so like the governments had so much control that they were able to sort of eventually um, get rid of the gold standard and introduce their own fiat standards. But like essentially with respect to fractional reserve, um, several people in Bitcoin believe that it's unsustainable in the long run without the lenders of last resort in conjunction with the monopoly on money that exists today. And even if it were to emerge uh, in the long run, uh, after one or two sort of collapses of such a system, people would essentially like get burnt and learn not to trust said Bitcoin substitutes because uh, the way I understand it is a fractional reserve system can't exist like with Bitcoin, with like physical Bitcoin itself, there would have to be uh, Bitcoin notes or Bitcoin certificates or like this fiduciary media that would be required to like temporarily expand the like the total supply of Bitcoin. Uh, a lot of people believe that such fiduciary media, like due to obvious risks involved, would if, even if they are to emerge, would trade at a discount to uh, like real Bitcoin itself which obviously has like less risks uh, like of yeah, bank, yeah. So bank I'll just jump in here. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Um, could you just uh, like, obviously I understand, but just for the listeners, could you explain what fiduciary media means or what that term is? For sure. So um, I believe fiduciary media is um, it would be, for example, under a gold system, a bank, a private bank would uh, have sort of, gold in its reserves or, or rather it would accept gold and then issue um fiduciary media that would be redeemable for gold but um oftentimes uh the amount of fiduciary like in the in a fractional reserve system the amount of fiduciary media in circulation would be much bigger than uh the total amount of gold that it's actually backed by Yep, that's right. That's right. So it, yep. in this example, let's say uh, the bank had 100 pieces of gold in its vault. And if it issued, say, 110 tickets to piece to a piece of gold, well, the fiduciary media refers to those 10 pieces, those 10 tickets that are issued above and beyond the actual amount of gold they have in their vault. So, right. yeah, that's a great, um, great way to uh, think about it. I thought I'd just make sure it's clear for the uh, for the listeners what exactly what fiduciary media is. Um, but yeah, carry on. Yeah, and um, so some people believe that like these fiduciary media would trade at a discount to Bitcoin itself. Others believe that um, either after a certain time or even never, uh, essentially like the market wouldn't accept these fiduciary media as Bitcoin itself. Although, uh, like as a counterpoint to that. Hal Finney, who was the, uh, the second the second most prominent Bitcoin developer and, and, and the second person to ever get involved in Bitcoin after Satoshi himself, he believed that like a free banking type system would actually emerge uh, and uh, like different, it would, it's like Bitcoin itself would be essentially like high powered money or base money and different banks would issue sort of their own, um, their own currencies backed by Bitcoin, some would be full reserve, some would be fractional reserve, and then like they would trade at like different ratios to one another based on like the market's perception of like the risk levels of different currencies. Um, mm. But but yeah, like it, it, of course, we will, we, will, we will see what happens. Uh, I increasingly find myself, I think, I think the free banking school um, that like the George Selgin, Lawrence White and several others um, have been proponents of for many decades. It's a, it's a very elegant sort of school and very interesting, but uh, I increasingly find myself in um, agreement with the, sort of the, the stricter full reserve wing of Austrians. Yeah, nice summary there. I think that was a really great summary for the listeners to sort of understand and contrast the different positions there. Uh, and then, yeah, I think you also do touch a little bit on the Keynesian sort of way of thinking as well. Maybe you want to just touch on that as contrasted with, say, the crypto Austrians. 
Definitely. And I, I'm so Keynesians, um, or rather mainstream economists, a lot of them, among other things, are worried about sort of the so-called deflationary death spiral. And like, just as a sideline, I increasingly think that like this idea that like deflation will necessarily lead to a massive societal collapse, it almost feels like propaganda at this point. And like, there essentially needs to be a governmental monopoly on money and that um, otherwise without quote unquote mild inflation, the economy would drop to a halt. But um, George Guido Hulsman, among several others, has several several books, several pieces, several online lectures um, clearly describing why that's not the case. But essentially the Keynesian argument is that like the inability um, like for money supply to get continuously expanded and essentially like diluted would result in Bitcoin's purchasing power growing by like two three 3% per annum. And essentially they, they're worried that like people would hoard money and like, instead of spending it, which would um, like reduce the aggregate demand and like reduce the levels of consumption and like, Consumption is like holy and sacred in the Keynesian approach to the economy. And like if consumption is suddenly reduced, uh, they believe that it, it, it would be very damaging. Um, the Austrian answer to that is twofold. First of all, Austrians don't believe that it's consumption that drives the economy, but rather the long-term um, production or rather long-term investment, long-term production long-term accumulation of capital productive goods and it's these kinds of things that lead to uh sustainable economic growth over the long run rather than sort of the more short-termist um year-to-year consumption levels by the populace and uh they also believe that sort of the deflationary concerns are the deflationary spiral concerns are overblown and many of them believe that sort of deflationary spiral is largely a myth a myth and um the answer is that like the the delay in spending it doesn't last in perpetuity but rather it's delayed into the future and people will end up having the, the, this deflationary money and the return to uh, sound deflationary economics would result in like lower time time preferences and instead of buy, buying like a lot of useless things and like these plastic goods and a lot of like this dumb shit that people just keep buying these days it, with their quote-unquote hot potato decaying money they would instead they would instead turn their attention to savings, long-term investments, and long-term productivities. And it would also um, result in much milder and much less damaging like boom and bust cycles. Excellent. Yeah, no, I like that summary. And I think the the key point that you've made there is around the, the redirection or the uh, different allocation let's say so instead of spending now that spending would get directed into the future so to speak and then entrepreneurs would try to re-architect or re-engineer their businesses such that they're serving those longer term interests so you know it's kind of like we we don't we don't just stop spending forever we just either spend it now or we spend it later and so entrepreneurs will then adjust to that so yeah that's that's a great summary there Murad. Right. Um, okay. So I think uh, the next cool aspect that I would like to go into is one of your, what I'm going to call your super viral thread, which was called, which started with Bitcoin will usher an era of unprecedented peace and prosperity. So I thought that was an absolutely fantastic thread. And I, you, you know, full credit to you. You, you, you scored something like 600 retweets on the, on that thread. It was an amazing thread. Um, maybe you want to sketch out the vision for us a little bit. What might me anticipate in the Bitcoin standard world? Definitely. Uh, and, and before I go into that, it's, it's of course very speculative on my side, but I believe that uh, it's, it's directionally correct. And um, I, was essentially, I was inspired by some of my um, Austrian reading. I was also inspired by some of my reading of the sovereign individual. Uh, and um, essentially the idea is that Things like mass scale wars, things like mass scale prison networks, torture networks, um, and this general sort of top down exploitation, it becomes much more expensive if you have to pay 
soldiers or quote unquote punisher salaries with scarce gold bricks, which which is what I consider Bitcoin to be. Essentially, I think what's going to happen is I don't think governments are going to like eventually and this is like super, super long term, but I don't think governments are going to go away entirely, but rather um, what's going to happen is what um, people are calling the Swissification of society. And essentially, um, the various kinds of exit costs, particularly starting from monetary ones, they will get reduced in this sort of era of um, decentralization. And what what is likely to happen is that uh, governments, due to sort of reduced uh, tax revenues and sort of reduced strength due to uh, no longer having a monopoly on money, um, monopoly on money printing, money creation, money transmission, they would end up having to be more competitive amongst one another to maintain uh, entrepreneurs on their soil, to maintain capital investments on their soil, to maintain sort of the smartest, most productive citizens on their soil. And I think that um, like the level of interventionism, whether, and I'm, I'm not even trying to be like prescriptive uh, in, in, in my thoughts. I'm just trying to like, pre- like descriptively predict what's going to happen, but essentially like it will, like it will create what I call hyper capitalism and like hyper competition and like this relatively more, particularly economically more borderless and more decentralized world of like unstoppable commerce. And, um, essentially the power of individuals, power of businesses would likely increase and the power of centralized authorities would likely slightly decrease. Uh, Murad, you, you also mentioned in that thread around, you know, this concept of when an Asian central bank or when a sovereign wealth fund buys Bitcoin. Do you have any speculation or thoughts on how that might carry out, how, how that might happen? For sure. And it, it, it ties back to sort of a bigger point. A lot of people who are new to Bitcoin or haven't thought about it as deeply, their number one sort of um, pushback is that, oh, governments are going to ban it or um or like governments are not going to let something like this take place. But it's very, very, very important to understand that I don't, I can't even remember a time in history when all governments around the world have essentially like banded together to achieve one goal. Like even during World War One or World War II, um, like even within the alliances um, of certain countries, they oftentimes couldn't like agree on certain things and they were very adversarial. And um, I haven't uh, listened to your podcast uh, with uh, Vijay Boyapati yet, but I'm sure he talks about like these things um, on uh, when when he was on. But essentially, the idea is that governments are adversarial, and governments aren't sort of all in cahoots with one another. That's on a macro scale. On a micro scale. Even individuals within governments, like within one country or within like the Communist Party of China or whatever, like they are not like one uniform, uh, like sort of being. They even members within within those sort of uh, bodies, they are adversarial. They are competitive. They have their own sort of self interests. And when people understand, and Pierre Rochard makes this point quite frequently just how hard and just how sound Bitcoin is. Uh, I mean, if if you consider the the supply to be 21 million, Bitcoin is still growing at like four or 5%, I think, Um, which is like, which is still relatively high. If you consider the lost Bitcoins and if you go off of the 17 million number, the inflation is actually like six to 6.5% or whatever, which is like a bit higher. So we don't quite intimately feel the hardness of Bitcoin yet. But each year, its hardness and its level of disinflation will get like higher and higher and closer and closer to fixed as years go by. And I think that even though people don't quite understand it yet, um, with every year, it will be more and more obvious to everyone around the world how great of a savings vehicle it is. Um, And this doesn't just concern average people or uh, nerds, cypherpunks, crypto anarchists, libertarians, o- Austrian economic sympathizers, but but really, li- literally everyone. And I believe that like funds themselves will eventually find themselves attracted to 
not just speculating, but eventually just simply allocating, just like they're allocating to cash or some funds are allocating to gold. I think like an allocate, like a 0.5 to 2 to 3% allocation to Bitcoin will become more and more common in the coming decade, both by high net worth individuals as well as large asset managers. And essentially, I think that like once it becomes like an open secret or even a, or even like open information that one of the central banks uh, has essentially allocated or, or one of the sovereign wealth funds, one of one of the big banks among the among the big company, um, among the among the big countries that they've allocated to Bitcoin, it's essentially going to like legitimize Bitcoin as an asset and will increasingly like make it a more and more competitive currency. And even though it might start as a sort of a digital gold, digital commodity, digital store of value type narrative, the bigger it gets, the more likely it is to become a currency in the full sense of the word. You, you have a real way with writing and speaking. And I think that's really epitomized in another tweet in that thread where you mention Bitcoin is a profound economic re renaissance falsely wrapped in a tech bubble itself falsely wrapped in a get rich quick scheme. Uh, do you want to comment on that? Definitely. And I think like there's layers to what's been happening in the past couple of years. To a lot of people, it's a get rich quick scheme. To a lot of um, a lot of newcomers get attracted to Bitcoin, like in in these boom and bust cycles, especially like during the boom part, the price is increasing. So I have to sort of get in before it's too late. A lot of sort of scammers and a lot of quote unquote entrepreneurs starting all these shit coins. Uh, to them, it's also a get-rich-quick scheme, sort of capitalizing on the hype of blockchain, riding off of the wave of the Bitcoin price appreciation, trying to create sort of the next Bitcoin, etc. So that's like the like the bottom, like the bottom feeders, so to speak. Then you have sort of the tech bubble. You have like the Ethereum's. Oh, this is a faster blockchain. This is a blockchain 6.0. It's a DAG 9.0, etc. And you have like this people <laughs> trying to. <laughs> trying to like make something like go faster or trying to improve quote unquote the UX. And to them, like it's, it's all about like the speed and the efficiency, et cetera. But really I think, and, and I like to tell this to every single person and I like to talk about this every single week and I will continue to do this despite it being repetitive because I think the point needs to be driven home is that in this entire quote unquote crypto or quote unquote blockchain space, I like to say, the most powerful thing and the most powerful innovation, the most powerful social innovation and potentially world-changing innovation is Bitcoin's difficulty adjustment, or rather the credibility of the Bitcoin's monetary policy. And really, it all stems from that. And without this, we wouldn't be here. And that is the most important thing. And to me, it's not about the dApps. It's not about the speedy blockchains. It's not about any of these things. To me, it's first and foremost about reinventing money and going back to a sounder, harder money and hopefully ending up with a fixed supply money or as close to a fixed supply money as possible. And I think sort of this economic renaissance, the return to sound money, the return to sort of free commerce, the return to the mildly deflationary economics, which I think is natural in a, free, in a truly free market. This is really what it's all about. And I like to say that both from the perspective of investment returns, both from the perspective of total addressable market, as well as from the potential for global world changing socioeconomic change, um, it's the reinvention of money that's by far the most interesting and by far the biggest. Yeah, fantastic. I really like that. Um, yeah, that's a really great summary. Uh, particular, I particularly like the parts you were mentioning there around the sort of natural two to three percent growth deflation that the world is going to experience, combined with all of the other you know prosperity that it's going to bring. Uh, and I think the other thing that you've done really well is sort of read the tea leaves well and kind of summarize the different thoughts and be quite well read around what's happening. So one graph that you've posted up and basically the tweet sort of goes, oh, now that we're all Bitcoin maximalists, and basically uh, it shows this chart and I'll, again, I'll post this chart in the show notes for this uh, show. Um, but essentially it sort of shows all these different stages. Uh, so for example, digital collectible for nerds and capitalists and cypherpunks, and then, you know, 
all these different steps along the way. So greater security, you know, we are here, greater perceived safety, greater education, reliable store of value, and then sort of out in the future, widespread medium of exchange, et cetera, onto unit of account and full global money. So it's an interesting graph. And I like the way you've um, tried to sort of understand where we are or where the various stages were. Um, I can see various elements of um, people uh, from the Bitcoin space who've commented and some of their phrases and their terminology. You know, I can see Safe Dean, VJ, Pierre Rochard, Trace Mayer, Giacomo. Who were some of your influences in this graph? Um, everyone you've mentioned are essentially like in the top 10 people. Um, huge fan of uh, Safe Dean, huge fan of Pierre Rochard, Bitstein, um, Giacomo, a big fan of your own tweets. Actually, someone recently told me that uh, you've been tweeting on like Austrian Econ and Bitcoin since like 2012, 2011 or something. Uh, yeah, I did actually delete my account. I sort of stopped my account and then kind of started back up. But uh, thank you. Yeah, yeah that, that, uh, I'm definitely not in the same league. <laughs> but yeah, okay. So I, I think um, that's a great uh, graph. And I think maybe it's... It, we, we could talk about what's what's missing for some of the you know the vanguards and the black rocks of the world to start offering you know more bitcoin mutual funds is it you know is it having an official exchange like the new york stock exchange the owner of that uh or is it just a time factor a lindy effect i think it's both simultaneously and they sort of um go hand in hand with each other i like to say and this is something very very important every 10 minutes and every single hour and every single day that Bitcoin doesn't explode and collapse from a technological point of view, from its blockchain point of view, um, it like the probability of Bitcoin succeeding in the long run increases. And essentially, uh, the longer it stays alive, the more people's perceived protocol reliability increases and the like and the people's anxiety about this sort of new technology and about this new paradigm shift with respect to money, it, this, the anxiety gets uh, de decreasingly intense. And I think that um, I was inspired to draw this chart from some of Vijay Boyapati's previous articles, just wanted to sort of expand upon some of the shorter milestones. But I think both, like as Bitcoin survives, people are going to increasingly think that okay, it's here to stay. And at the same time, uh, greater, I think, uh, more insurance solutions, more robust and proven custody solutions, which will require some minor Lindy effect of their own. Um, sort of general, uh, more liquidity, more sort of institu institutionalization, as well as generally more regulatory clarity. And I think all of these things uh, are like smaller rivers that will eventually be inflows into this greater river. And as Bitcoin survives, and as there are more solutions around this protocol, uh, I think that more and more investors will increasingly consider it to be a store of value and a monetary good. Yeah, that's great. And I think you, you, some of the focus I've seen from you lately in terms of some of your uh, output on social media is around what are the criteria that will determine the monetary store of value winner? And that's probably the key, the key thing that you need to win in order to then kind of proceed on. Uh, do you have any other comments around uh, other important criteria that define the SOV winner? For sure. So I think first and foremost, it's about security. Um, and Security, both in terms of sort of the cost of attacking the system, as well as sort of the quality of the code and the quality of the software engineering involved. Um, the, the censorship resistance and the general levels of sort of the decentralization of block production and decentralization of the node is also highly important. And perhaps the most important to me is, uh, to me, Bitcoin is first and foremost a potential future money. And I think the, the disinflationary monetary policy coupled with the credibility of that monetary policy is highly, highly important. And um, I would like to say that recently somebody has um, emailed me a draft of a future article called Why Inflation is Good for Crypto Networks. And really, it just made me more bullish on Bitcoin. And um, 
a lot of people and like this is what i like to this is i think this is the biggest misconception well there's really two big misconceptions um and the, the biggest one is a lot of venture capitalists and a lot of technology investors they approach blockchains as software platforms and they approach blockchains in general just as software instead of approaching them as monetary systems and instead of approaching them as money and to me uh crypto assets all crypto assets are in comp all unpegged crypto assets are in competition for becoming that one monetary winner and really like that is the biggest misconception and i i replied to that email saying something along the lines of no ux improvements imaginable are so essentially like the, the argument of that piece was that like higher inflation can allow for greater ux because essentially you can pay for secure a quote unquote security of the network and you can pay for everything for um you can pay for everything with inflation and this way like the fees would like be very 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 small to non-existent and you would essentially allow uh like the like just like EOS or or Nano or all these other things, like with with inflation, you can have like faster blockchains, you can have low fees, etc. And once again, these people keep thinking of these platforms as payment rails, which is like totally totally wrong, which is like the biggest misunderstanding. Um, and essentially, like to me, this revolution isn't about speed and it isn't about smoothness and it isn't about quote unquote software UX. It's about one thing and one thing only unprintable uninflatable money and i think people will come to realize this as bitcoin like proves its hardness the way hard money works is that over the long run it will bankrupt everyone holding any monetary media but the hardest money and so better ux and like the ux they have in mind is like the speed etc it will not necessarily lead to higher network value um and this is like well where the argument collapses uh only wealth parking inside the asset leads to higher network value over time and like sober wealth funds and billionaires in the coming decades they will almost exclusively care about security and disinflation and that's what really matters especially when they're going to be choosing a wealth parking mechanism or the cash of the future so to speak and users may gravitate to better ux when it comes to software but wealth and trillions of dollars will gravitate towards disinflation and sort of that's my view yeah, agreed. And I think what you're kind of pointing out there as well, it, it brings to mind this idea that you want to do one thing and do one thing well. You don't want to try to be all things. And I think that's really a point that you're hammering on there as well. Um, right. And I think this sort of ties into the next question, which is around this discussion of, oh, maybe Ethereum or some of these smart contract platforms, maybe they're going to win because, quote unquote, more people are building apps on it. So how would you respond to those people? Right. Yeah. It, it comes back to the same exact argument, which is viewing, uh, viewing like these systems, crypto networks, blockchains, whatever these projects, they're viewing them either as software platforms for things to get built on top. And it's understandable why like VCs and like Sam Silicon Valley investors would approach blockchains in this way, because like in the centralized web 2.0 world of the past 15 years these have sort of been the big winners but or they approach like bitcoin cash and some of the others they approach these systems as like predominantly or most importantly or first and foremost as um means of payment or payment rail and really that's that's the big misconception because if like a we for, we already have thousands of of payment rails around the world two we already like we already have ways to like pay relatively quickly like this isn't what what's what, what it's really about a lot of people in the western world in america and canada which have never really experienced the high levels of inflation they don't really understand like why it's such a big revolution but when i when you talk to the people sort of in the second and the third world they they understand the beauty of like bitcoin's disinflation very very acutely and essentially mm, the point is that I like to describe these systems as hybrid money softwares, but contrary to what a lot of people think, we have to analyze them as money first 
and monetary systems first and software second. And in my view, absent sort of absent legal tenders and state decrees and high returns on violence and military monopolies and debt extinguishing laws and borders and all these things which like don't exist or don't exist as much in the digital realm, in the internet realm, uh, where I believe Bitcoin resides. Essentially, an inflationary money, which most of these altcoins are, uh, an inflationary money will never defeat a deflationary money as a wealth storage mechanism and as a store of value in the free market. And in my view, in the grand scheme of things, smart contracts, dApps, software UX improvements, all these things, they pale in comparison to the size, to the need, and to the desire to for people to preserve and protect their hard-earned wealth. So that's that. Yeah, fantastic articulation there. It's it's really money first and software second. Um, okay, so the next big story that I thought would be great to get your views on is obviously this new backed, you know, New York Stock Exchange owner, the ICE um, story, where they are essentially launching this new uh, company that will enable. Basically, it, the idea is it will clear the way for major money managers to offer Bitcoin mutual funds. Now. There's been some debate in the community. Some people have said, oh, look, Bitcoin doesn't need the banks. Um, but my question then to you is, is that perhaps neglecting the value of people being able to invest money that's currently locked up in, say, the US 401k system or in the Australian superannuation system or just the ease of investing? Do you have any comments on that? Yeah, so in general, I think that was relatively bullish news. And some have described it as the biggest news of 2018 so far. And I think that's reasonable. The fact that the market, like in the in the 24 hours after that announcement, the fact that the market barely reacted or didn't react at all, it was essentially flat, confirms my short-term bearishness on Bitcoin. And don't get me wrong, you will not find a bigger long-term Bitcoin bull, but I still remain mildly bearish in the short term. Um, I think the news itself were very, very positive. And I think it's a great step towards um, the legitimacy of Bitcoin. If the New York Stock Exchange um, gets into this business and starts essentially evangelizing Bitcoin as a product, and when the co-founder of, um, when the owner and the founder of the New York Stock Exchange and its parent company comes out and says that, Bitcoin, it's, it's possible that Bitcoin is sort of the money of the future or an important digital monetary asset of the future. That's very, very bullish. And that's very, very positive. Because it, let's be honest, we do need institutional money for Bitcoin to continue climbing higher and to continue um, going on these major bull runs. And something like this is definitely positive, in my view. On the other side, uh, recently, Trace Mayer and Caitlin Long have been talking about some of the potential dangers of over-financialization of Bitcoin as well. And this sort of tangentially ties into sort of these um, fractional uh, reserve sort of fears. Essentially, the idea is that um, it is possible that over financialization of Bitcoin can't uh, potentially be damaging to uh, Bitcoin's scarcity. And like, obviously this isn't happening at the moment, but some have speculated that uh, too much financialization could see an emergence of various Bitcoin derivatives, various financial products, margin loans, hypothetication and leveraged instruments that some of which would not be fully backed by physical Bitcoin itself. And if sort of the total size of these instruments gets too big, um, then relative to the size of Bitcoin itself, especially like in the early days, it could have an impact on Bitcoin's price and it could have a damaging Bitcoins on um, general like Bitcoin's scarcity. Because like you could view some of these instruments as well, you could tangentially view some of these instruments as a form of fiduciary media that we've uh, discussed earlier.
Yeah, sure, sure. No, I understand that. Appreciate that. And I think that is a, a risk. I was actually curious as well. You were mentioning earlier around uh, being bearish in the short term. Do you want to expand a little bit on that? And you know, maybe we're overbought at the moment, and uh, you know, sometimes Bitcoin kind of gets ahead of itself, and then it's got to sort of spend some time in the doldrums before its next big run. Uh, do you want to comment on that? Yes. Um, so even though we are already down um, around seventy percent in with with Bitcoin and up to 95% with some of these other altcoins. I still think that um, the space as a whole is overvalued relative to the point where we are right now in history. And uh, obviously, I think that Bitcoin is much, much less, uh, much more fairly valued than some of these other assets. I still think we're in the euphoria and in the mania in the mania stage um if these if these borderline scammy networks like tron iota ripple and others are still despite these massive drops and despite the alt alt altcoin apocalypse that we're seeing these weeks uh if they're still trading at multi-billion dollar valuations then i still consider the space as a whole to be a misunderstood and two, wildly overvalued. And uh, I'm just concerned that as we see money outflow from these uh, scammy altcoins, these shitcoins essentially, and um, it, it might not have a perfect flight to quality nature to it and flow to Bitcoin, but rather in this big fear and this big collapse of these shitcoins, as people wise up, as retail, even retail unsophisticated, unsophisticated investors wise up, it might sort of pull Bitcoin downwards as well. In general, like altcoins aside, if we look at Bitcoin itself, I think sort of the jump to 20K that we witnessed in the December of last year, it might have been um, too much even for Bitcoin itself at this point in time. Because like, let's be honest, not everyone is sort of this like Austrian sound money libertarian advocate as we are. And to many, many people, it's still very much a speculative asset. I like to say that Bitcoin is considered to be like a riskiest asset today, but um, 20, 25 years from now, it could be the safest asset. Um, it could be far safer than what cash and what the US dollar is today. But essentially today, uh, in the eyes of large asset managers, it's still a risky asset. And like, let's be honest, it takes somewhere between um, six to eight months to sort of fully or even more to fully get up to speed to what's going on. Uh, I still think that we're probably halfway or 60% done with the general bear market correction. My prediction, and uh, this is, of course, very speculative on my side, and this is not investment advice, but I think we will break 5,000 and we will bottom somewhere in the um, four to 5,000 range, somewhere between sort of November and March, April of next year. And I think that it will be very, very prudent. If you're a believer in the in Bitcoin and if you're a believer in the future of sound money, I think uh, converting some of your fiat and some of your investments in general to Bitcoin in the vicinity of the upcoming bottom, I think is a very prudent move and something that I plan to personally do as well. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I think um, one of the points I liked that you know VJ has made was, as well is around how it's it's almost like you need to wait for the boring low it's you know when people are still you know crying about the the price coming down you probably probably you may not be at the bottom but who knows right we 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 really don't know i mean it could also be that you know we're just waiting for the next big you know we're just kind of taking a breather before the next big run up and you know right. um, that's that's the crazy thing about this market as well that you know you never really know it's also yeah it's also possible that like we like me and you because like we are like subjectively biased towards like these kinds of monetary systems. And we essentially like spend a couple of hours a day on crypto Twitter at least. And like we are in this Bitcoin bubble and it's possible that because like it's such a reflexive asset, like people like to say that Bitcoin's price is like the fundamental. And so um, it's possible that this is going to be like a prolonged bear. Like that's the worst case scenario. 
but in my view the sort of that like that general bottom um like the length of that bottom is going to be a bit shorter than what it was in 2014 2015 just because like there are just more eyeballs on this asset class now more eyeballs on bitcoin more people who understand what it's all about more bitcoin more people uh who even in the traditional finance world who understand what the value proposition is uh, much many more funds um de uh, devoted to this space now and so i think that sort of that flat horizontal bottom is going to be a bit less u-shaped and a bit more v-shaped relatively speaking um and i think that there has been more as as uh willie Wu likes to point out there's general more buying going on without the scenes uh, behind the scenes these days than there was in 2014 when some people generally thought like bitcoin could die or bitcoin was on the verge of collapsing i think there are a lot fewer people who think that bitcoin is going to go away completely and there are a lot more people despite the volatility and despite the 70 percent drop who think that bitcoin is here to stay and who are dollar cost averaging in to this investment um at these levels and they will continue to do it more fiercely as we see uh sort of the a, a bit lower levels in the coming months yeah i like that i think and that's that's really highlighting the importance of the long-term view and i think you're right what we are seeing is more and more people taking that long-term view and now we've got more people who are sort of hardened against you know the big dips let's say right um okay so i think that they're, that's they're the main points i was uh, keen to hit today so, uh, Murad, let's uh, start wrapping it up. Um, but before we do that, do you have any uh, projects or anything coming up that you uh, want to speak about at this stage? Um, for sure. I am in the process of launching a uh, cryptocurrency hybrid venture slash hedge fund. And um, I will be very excited to talk more about it uh, in the coming weeks. But in the meantime, you can always uh, find me on Twitter at MustStopMurad. Excellent. Yeah, that's great. So guys, definitely go out and follow Murad on Twitter at MustStopMurad. I'll put links in the show notes page. Also see the articles he wrote on uh, Medium, written by him and Adam Tash. Uh, again, the, the notes for those will be on the episode as well. Uh, and I uh, suppose just to wrap up the conversation, uh, this is... Uh, SLP episode eight. You can find the show notes on my website, stefanlevera.com. Um, make sure you subscribe, uh, rate, and also share it with your friends. Um, but yeah, that's it from us. So uh, thanks very much, Murad, and uh, we'll speak soon. For sure. Bye.